Welcome to the intersection of faith and the culture. This is Wall Builders Live, and it's Foundations of Freedom Thursday. We're diving into those foundations, and we're taking your questions so you can guide the conversation on which particular area of those foundations we're going to discuss. But we're always talking about hot topics in the culture from a biblical, historical, and constitutional perspective. We're having that conversation today with David Barton. He's America's premier historian and the founder of Wall Builders. Tim Barton is a national speaker and pastor and the president of Wall Builders. And my name is Rick Green. I'm a former Texas legislator. You can find out more about us and the program, and you can also listen to some of the past programs over the last few months right there at wallbuilderslive.com. That's our website for the radio program. You can get a list of our stations, a lot of other great information there. And then over at wallbuilders.com, you can get some great tools for your family, whether it's DVDs or watching videos online or getting some of the books or just reading some of the articles right there on the website. All of it is designed to equip and inspire you to be a part of the solution, to be a good citizen and live out your freedom in a, in a way that will preserve it for future generations. One of the things you can do is our founders gave us lives, fortunes, and sacred honor is to invest some of that fortune, to actually make a contribution to Wall Builders. Maybe it's a one-time donation, maybe it's a monthly donation, but if you would come alongside us and help support this program, we're a listener-supported program, it allows us to reach more people, inspire more people, equip more people, and do our part in preserving freedom for future generations. Check it all out at wallbuilders.com today. All right, guys, let's dive into those questions. First one's coming from Dennis, has to do with school boards. He said, recent amendments in Michigan can have direct effect on school-age children. Can school boards for their district overrule and resist state laws supporting transgender and abortion policies? In one of Wall Builders' presentations on radio, there was a reference made to the power of school districts being able to override state policies. However, I do not recall the specifics. Okay, guys, so essentially talking about a almost interposition at the local level for school districts, can they say, okay, listen, that state law requiring transgenderism or preventing us from notifying a parent of something that they should know about? Uh, sorry, we're not gonna we're not gonna follow that. We're gonna we're gonna do what's right on the local level. I, I, I'm assuming that's the type of situation we're talking about here. Yeah, and there's a lot that would go with that. Uh, you know, Prop Three passed in Michigan, and and man, was that a bad prop as far as life goes and what you can teach and what you will teach. So there's a lot that they could trickle down in the schools. But giving examples, um, schools are able to push back on all sorts of things where there is a constitutional basis or where there is a good policy basis. And I'll just point out that uh, this last week, I think it was Illinois, Prisker signed this law banning all type of assault weapons, whatever. And I think it was the, I think it was the sheriff or the, the police chief in Chicago that said, yeah, we're not going to enforce that law because it violates the Second Amendment. So even though the state said, here's the new law, you've got real clear evidence that, yeah, that's that may be the new law, but it violates the, the Second Amendment, violates recent Supreme Court decisions. We're not going to do that. Same with, with what school districts can do on parental rights. Rick, you mentioned you know notifying parents. We're not going to notify whatever. No, you, you go back to a number of Supreme Court decisions that says it's the, the right of the parents to direct the education of bringing their children, and you, you notify them. There's a lot of things school boards can do to push back uh, and, and that they should do to push back, and they need to reflect really what is right, what is legal, what is appropriate, what makes common sense, and hopefully reflect the values of the community. But you know, we've talked in recent programs that sometimes the silent majority has been silent for too long. And those elected school boards don't know who the majority is. They just know who shows up at the meeting and yells at them. 
And so they make policies based on where they get pressure. So there's a lot that school boards can do to go in a good direction. There's a lot they can do, for example, to clean out their libraries, even though that the state may say, hey, these are the books you're going to put in the library. You don't have to put all those books in the library. There's a lot of things that school boards can do that will take a very healthy um, direction for kids and for families and for the culture, assuming you get the right people on the school board. So you get the right people on the school board. And by the way, we'll also point out that a lot of times it's the school administration and the school attorneys who know less about constitutional law than anybody else. And so they, they just want to avoid litigation. Sometimes you need litigation to get some bad stuff done. You need litigation on being able to, to maybe post the Ten Commandments because now the court has said, hey, with Lemon gone and the decision they gave last year, with the Lemon decision gone, we're wiping out 73 previous decisions we've made and you can start doing things. Well, somebody start pushing that, start saying, OK, based on what the court said, let's do that. That's where you need the right kind of people on school boards and the right kind of school attorneys. Well, that's the same idea, too, as we've talked about promoting some of those ideas. You know, it'd be no different than a, a kid on the football team after a football game who says, hey, we, we should have a prayer and then go invite other other kids. And right. You might have school officials say, no, you can't do that. Actually, you can do that. Right. If, if, if students want to host a Bible study on campus and teachers can participate in that Bible study, there's so many things that some of these individuals think we can't do. And if we don't have good people on these school boards to say, guys, this is totally fine. We're not shutting down that program. We're not telling them they can't pray. We're not, no, we're not telling a football coach he can't pray on the football field. That was literally the coach Joe Kennedy decision from this last summer where the U.S. Supreme Court identified, yes, you can't fire someone because they prayed on the football field after a game. But if people don't know this and they can't push back against these bad policies that are currently in place in nearly every single school across the nation, and so having people on those school boards, and we've talked about before in the program too, this doesn't necessarily mean we are encouraging people to send their kids to public school, right? By and large, we think, no, that, that's not a good place to have your kids go on pretty much any reason if you can help it. And if you have kids that are not in the public school or are in the public school, it doesn't matter. If you are a tax-paying citizen, you can go to a school board meeting where you pay taxes. You even can run for school board. If you have no kids in that school district at all, you, maybe you're retired grandparents. You don't have kids in school. You can still go participate in that school board. You can have a voice in what goes on. You can run for school board. You can be the president of the school board. You can make a difference in those situations. And we need people in those situations who are awake to truth, who understand the Constitution, who understand the rights of individuals and the students, and who will protect those rights. Yeah, great question from Dennis and, and a great way for each of us to get involved on that local level with the school boards and, and support them when they do this, when they resist some of those outrageous state laws and support the kids that are willing to stand up to the school board when they're the ones with the outrageous policies. All right, next question is from Erin. She wants to know, can we define what, quote, Christian nationalist means and how should we approach someone who throws that label at us and uh, how do we refute or correct their understanding with love and grace? Okay, have to let you guys answer this one because usually when I get this one, uh, I don't answer with love and grace. I know that's wrong, but I just kind of... <laughs> <okay. laughs> <laughs> I usually this, laugh and say, I don't know. What are you talking about? Those are made up words. But anyway, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> well, first of all, we have to to break down the, the, the premise of what we are talking about. One of the battles we are in is over definitions. Uh, and, and people forget that words actually mean things. And sometimes words are taken and they become slanders when the reality is that's not necessarily what that word was or was used for. That's not what that word actually means. Words have definitions and, and, and they still mean things. But the argument behind Christian nationalists when people are critical is anybody that tries to promote biblical values 
in American culture, they say you are a Christian nationalist. You are trying to make America a Christian nation. By the way, as if that would be a bad Worse thing. Worse than that, you're trying to establish a theocracy. You're going to force all of us to, to be Christians, and you demand that everybody be Christians to have civil rights, and it's, it's ridiculous. Well, okay, see, I, I'm going to point out that some people don't even go that far. Some people just say, if you're promoting Christianity, you're a Christian nationalist. A lot of pastors are going there. Right, because it, it's not even— it's not even that we would compel everybody to believe what we believe, but if you want to uphold a moral standard of right and wrong, right? If you are promoting a moral standard of right and wrong, then then you are a Christian nationalist. And this is fundamentally contrary to the very notion of being a Christian, where when Jesus taught the greatest sermon ever, Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, and, and he told the people there that, that you are the salt of the earth. You're, you're a city on a hill. You're the light of the world. And remember, the salt is no good if it loses saltiness, right? If, if we are not engaging to try to preserve culture, if we are not being a light that drives out darkness is what light does, if we are a city that is hidden, right? We, we don't we don't hide our lamp under a bushel, no, right? That's an old song, we remember it. But <laughs> this is where the idea that we can't promote Christianity, it, it, it's absurd. And this is what people are pointing to to say, well, you shouldn't promote Christian ideas, ideology, or value. And sometimes, Dad, to your point, they'll say, well, we just don't want it in government because then you're going to make all of us be Christians or all of us follow something. And the argument I would love to point out is that all of us are going to follow something, right? When we say, one of the arguments with libertarians, they say, well, government shouldn't legislate morality. That's a pretty dumb statement. Because every single law is reflecting somebody's morality. Because every law is about something that somebody thinks is right or something is wrong. Well, they shouldn't be able to do that. They should be able to do this. Well, well, how did you come to that conclusion? Because you have a moral code that tells you what is right and wrong. Every piece of legislation deals with morality. And so it's not a matter of, are we going to legislate morality? It's whose morality are we going to legislate? And right now what we are doing is we are legislating morality that penalizes Christians, that says you can't say that you think someone's sexual identity or sexual behavior is wrong. Well, that's somebody's morality. We are legislating morality. We are acting on morality. So it's really only a question of whose morality we're going to legislate. Well, then it's a different conversation of, well, which morality makes the most sense? Because if we're going to compare morals, right? If we ask someone, how do you determine right and wrong? As a Christian, our answer should be, well, it's based on what the Bible says. That, that's how we determine right and wrong. But if you don't believe in absolutes, if you don't believe in absolute values, absolute morals, objective truth, then the only other options for you are you say, well, society should just vote on it. Society should decide, or it's up to each individual. And you don't have to be real smart to realize that those two suggestions aren't going to work. That that if it's up to each individual, well, then who are you to tell someone else they're wrong? Or if it's up to society, well, has society never been wrong? Have, has society never determined there were certain classes of people that that shouldn't be allowed to exist or shouldn't be allowed to buy things or shouldn't own land? Or like, have we never seen societies go wrong? Well, well, clearly. So then it's just a matter of whose morality makes the most sense. And one of the the comparisons I would offer is if you want to compare moralities, or and this is also where religions come in, right? Because in Christianity, well, well, who is the hero of that religion? Who, who's the hero in that moral structure? Well, for us, it's Jesus. And there was no greater moral teacher than Jesus. So if we're going to compare moral structures and systems, let, let's compare heroes. And I'm going to put Jesus up against any hero anywhere else in the world. And I know he's always going to win. But this comes back to this notion of with Christian nationalists, when people say, wait, but you're promoting Christianity. We shouldn't have that. There's always going to be a moral system that governs 
any society, any culture. And it's not a matter of if there are morals, it's whose morals are going to prevail. And this is where the founding fathers recognized the best moral code was that found in the Bible, was that taught by Jesus. And that's why the founding fathers pretty universally promoted the Bible and the moral teachings of Jesus. And there is also a progressive political aspect of this term. Uh, This term really emerged just about three to four months before last election. And it came out from the left and the progressives, and it was used as a pejorative to say, oh, these these Christian people are involved. And by the way, when progressives look at Christian voters, they know that that's not who's supporting them. Um, By and large, when you break down demographics, partisan-wise, Christian voters tend to be conservative. Conservatives tend to trend Republican. So progressives tend to trend Democrat. So they recognize that the biggest force they've got to overcome on the other side are the religious voters. And what you do is you create a pejorative. You, you create this, this demeaning term, a, a Christian nationalist. You're trying to establish America as a Christian nation. And, and it was designed to get Christians out of politics and to keep their faith and hide their faith and make it silent. They wanted a more secular arena. It was significant at the time that a lot of the younger pastors right after that started pulling American flags out of the church. We're not going to have an American flag. We're not Christian nationalists. We're not. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You you ought to have. Let me just ask a more basic question. What do you do when you love someone? You sacrifice for them. You, you want the best for them, et cetera. If you love your country, you're going to try to get the best for your country. You're going to sacrifice for it. You're going to make every opportunity you can to help improve it. That's what you do for your family. Every church ought to have a Christian flag and an American flag in the church, because just like we serve Christ, we want to help the country. We want to help the country to move forward. And this was something, too, that for many of us growing up in some of these churches, there were flags of lots of different nations because you had missionaries in those nations and you were praying for those nations. But the idea that you wanted the best for a nation or you wanted to remember a nation or keep that nation first and to somehow presume it's bad if if people want to consider America and want America to do better, I I would point them to Jeremiah 29. That's right. where, Where Jeremiah was literally writing to people who were slaves in captivity, part of the Babylonian captivity, and he tells them. He says, when 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 you are taken to this land and, and, and you're enslaved in this land, he says, don't, don't stop your life. Don't stop marrying. Don't stop having kids. Don't stop raising families. He says, you need to seek the peace and, and the good of the land in which you are living because when it goes well with the land, it will go well with you. Now, he's writing to people who were literally kidnapped, taken away as slaves, and he told them, you should seek the best for the nation where you live. Well, this is common sense, right? If you lived in Japan, if you lived in South Korea, if you lived in India, you pick a place. You live in Brazil, right? It doesn't matter. If you live somewhere, you would want the best for the place you live because when it goes better for the place where you live, you enjoy the benefits and it's better for you as well. And so now this notion to say that if Christians are supporting America and want the best for America, well, then... They're Christian nationalists. All this, Dad, back to your point, it's just a pejorative to try to keep people from wanting to support America or promoting America and sometimes even praying for America, which is crazy. But it it certainly doesn't, this, this notion of Christian nationalism, it doesn't line up with biblical truth that we're supposed to be salt and light. We should promote biblical values. We we should uphold a moral standard. We should uphold the Bible as objective truth and reality. And we should want to promote these things in legislation. It always should be wrong to murder. It always should be wrong to steal. It, like what the Bible teaches is right and wrong. That's largely what we should be doing from that value and that moral sense of what the Bible teaches. And what happens a lot of time when they throw out these terms in a lot of ways, they just don't define it. They just throw it out there as a pejorative, and it's supposed to be a smear term. And I've gone through a lot of these. It used to be Christian dominionist, and it used to be Christian nation. 
and I got accused of all these, and it was always to make people think that I was really out there on the fringes. Man, I wanted the weird things. And a Christian, why did I get called a Christian dominionist, which preceded Christian nationalists? It's because they have me on record believing that marriage should be between one man and one woman. Well, guess what? 32 states believe that when they pass those state constitutional amendments. So actually, they're taking the majority and trying to make it into a pejorative so that people say, oh, you're one of those. I'm going to stay away from those. And same thing when they said, I believe in a Christian nation. No, I just simply reported the fact that there's 300 court cases in American history calling America a Christian nation, and we actually defined it differently than what we do today. So the left has redefined it to say Christian nation means you want everybody to be a Christian. They can't vote if they're not a Christian. This is just another term of the left to try to smear Christians and make them hide their faith and get in a closet and let the secular guys run the world because we need a separation of church and state, which means faith can't be in the public. This is just another iteration of what they've been doing for 30, 40 years trying to secularize the public square. See, you guys had so much more love and grace than I would have because I would have said, well, Christian nationalist means you have no idea what the nation is like that Christians founded because the nation founded by Christians does not force Christianity on people in the first place. And everybody benefits, the Muslim, the atheist, everybody of every faith. And so Christian nationalist is actually a compliment if you go to the real meaning of what a Christian nation is all about. And of course, as you guys said, I mean, the other side is just trying to paint a picture that doesn't actually exist because they know it works with a lot of those mamsy pamsy wimpy christians out there that are like oh i don't want to come across as a bigot so i'm not being very loving and graceful so we're going to go to a break we'll be right back (laughs) we've got more questions on foundations of freedom thursday you're listening to walt builder Hey friends, if you've been listening to Wall Builders Live for very long at all, you know how much we respect our veterans and how appreciative we are of the sacrifice they make to make our freedoms possible. One of the ways that we love to honor those veterans is to tell their stories here on Wall Builders Live. Once in a while, we get an opportunity to interview veterans that have served on those front lines, that have made incredible sacrifices, have amazing stories that we want to share with the American people. One of the very special things we get to do is interview World War II veterans. You've heard those interviews here on Wall Builders Live from folks that were in the Band of Brothers to folks like Edgar Harrell that survived the Indianapolis to so many other great stories you've heard on Wall Builders Live. You have friends and family that also serve. If you have World War II veterans in your family that you would like to have their story shared here on Wall Builders Live, please email us at radio at wallbuilders.com, radio at wallbuilders.com. Give us a brief summary of the story and we'll set up an interview. Thanks so much for sharing here on Wall Builders Live. Welcome back. Thanks for staying with us here on the Wall Builders Show with David and Tim Barton and Rick Green. We're thankful that you're here on this Foundations of Freedom Thursday. And we've got time for another question from you in the audience, which, by the way, you can send them in to radio at wallbuilders.com. All right, David, here we go. Tim, this is to, oh, to all three of us, David, Tim, and Rick. I just remember the one the other day that was like, David and Tim, what do you think? Rick, we don't want to hear what you... No, it wasn't quite that bad, but you know, I'm being all sensitive and everything. Okay. I was listening to your podcast about giving boys the encouragement they need to be men with David Pate, so that's a second David we've got involved here. I appreciate you guys discussing the topic. There are other topics that need to be addressed as well. How do we address the low dating rate? The marriage rates, having children rates are down. Women initiate 70% of divorces. Men are walking away from even considering marriage. Men aren't finding marriage worth it when he uh, when he gets taken to divorce court and everything gets taken from him by the court system as a divorce rate in and out of the church is 50%. Since I've read scripture every year, cover to cover, I've begun to understand that the family is the cornerstone to civilization. If the family's strong, 
the country's strong. But if the family's weak, the country's weak. So here's the question. He says, how do we get people to see marriage as sacred as it once was? How do we change the court system? Very curious to hear your your answer on the matter. Ken from Washington. Thank you, Ken, for sending that in. Okay, guys, a lot in there. Uh, basic summary of that, I think, is um, the court system and sort of the way we've let the pendulum swing the other direction has caused a lot of men to say it's not worth it. And so they're walking away and not even getting married in the first place. Well, I think that absolutely is part of it. You know, Rick, when we interviewed David and, and you talked about uh, Tinder Warrior, the book, and, yeah. and finding that balance. And one of the challenges with culture right now with raising men, we have so many boys. You have 30 and 40 and 50-year-old boys. They're not men we haven't shown them how to be men. Well, similarly, at times, we have not shown people how to be effective in relationships. And that can be in a dating and courting, right? Even a marriage relationship. But I can tell you, right? No no 20-year-old boy is thinking, oh, I don't want to get married because I might get divorced. Like that, that's not, and I'm saying boy, like no, 20-year-old man. But there's no young man in their early 20s is like, oh, I can't touch marriage. I might get divorced. Like that, that is not the concern it's usually people who were not mature, who weren't looking for that next step, who weren't looking for that next stage, who then, once they're in their 30s and they start looking, they then begin questioning, is it even worth it? And the reality at that point is, you know, you, you, you start asking like, okay, if you're in your 30s and still single, like, is, is there something else going on? Is there a reason? Have you been looking? Because what I can tell you, and, and, and I'm not the expert on this, but I can nearly unequivocally speak what I feel like is 100% certainty, and I feel like when I say this, there's going to be a whole lot of women out there who affirm this. This is something we even mentioned on the David Pate podcast, uh, or the podcast when David Pate was with us, that program, is there are so many amazing single girls out there, and they're, they're not being approached by guys. I mean, I mean genuinely, I, I know so many incredible single women uh, from my church, uh, friends of the family, and, and you're just wondering, like, how is this person still single? How are they not married? And their mom with all these kids... Because guys are not engaging. And again, I don't think it's largely because guys are afraid of the divorce rate. Now, if they're in their 30s and 40s, they might think about, right, is this going to work? Can we navigate it? But the reality is we're not showing them how to be men, how to engage in that conversation, how to initiate that conversation. And again, going back to being men, not even just with women, but right, there's not a lot of, of, of boys when they are boys that their dad is helping them. Hey, no, when you shake somebody's hand, you squeeze it a little bit, you look in their eyes, right? We're not showing them to be men. And so then they're not the leaders we need in society, but they're also not the leaders we need in relationship. And there certainly is more to it than that. And even when people talk about the divorce rate with 50% of marriages ending in divorce, that's true, but it's also a little skewed because of the 50% of marriages that end in divorce, it's actually only about 25% of people that get divorced but usually people that have gone through a divorce, by average, they go through more than one divorce. And so that number is actually skewed higher by a smaller percentage of people who have gone through several broken relationships along the way. And so if you look inside a church, you're not going to find 50% of the new people in your church that have gone through divorce. It's going to be more like in the, the 20 to 30% of people that have gone through divorce. But again, th- these are just different dynamics and I understand it's a tough conversation by and large to have. But we have to be intentional about helping teach what we want to have happened and not just have a fear of what might happen. Because this, to me, goes back to even when the Israelites were going to go take Canaan. And Moses says, hey, let's choose a leader from each tribe to come forward and we'll send them out as spies. Right. And Joshua and Caleb come back and they're like, man, this is great. Let's go do it. And the other 10 were like, yeah, but but these giants and we were grasshoppers in our own sight. Everybody saw the same thing, but a different perspective set one group up for success and the other group never got into the promised land. 
And we need to help young men realize that they are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus, that they are the ones who can overcome and take this promised land, right? You can have a great marriage. You can have a great family. You can raise kids that love you, that love each other, that love God. But we have to teach them in the positive sense to aggressively pursue what is out there for them and not be so fearful of the giants in the land that they become grasshoppers in their own sight. They're not willing to step up and do something. And see, a lot of this goes counterculture to what the impressions are. Because we get, I'll go back to the 70s and 80s when, when sitcoms started attacking the traditional family. And there were a lot of people back then saying, wait a minute, that's not what family looks like. The women's rights movement of the 70s and 80s said, if you're a wife, you're a slave. Well, that's not what marriage is. But we started attacking marriage. We started making it look like it was not very honorable, like it was a really silly arrangement. And so we've gone through years of that indoctrination. We got that in schools as well. There's not the esteem for marriage. And so what you find with with marriages specifically, literally, is in the last generation, a lot of millennials, more than half millennials, grew up in a home without a mother and a father. And in the Gen Z generation, it's much more in the 68% range. So you actually have now two generations who have not seen a functioning parent, a functioning family, a good relationship, a strong marriage. And strangely enough, in the 70s and 80s, churches were having all sorts of marriage seminars all the time, how to build a strong marriage, how to, how to create a good relationship. And I haven't seen that in most churches in forever. I mean, this is a huge need in society. So I would point to a, a lot of our institutional things are not helping create the right image or training you how to be a person in a marriage, male, female, what the role of each is. And that's schools, that, that's media, uh, that's churches, that's even our own reading, even training our kids under us. They're coming into a culture where that marriage is despised. Uh, that's part of the LGBTQIA plus stuff. There's, there's attack on traditional marriage. So we've got to go counterculture, and that means you have to be deliberate to do this. And that's something, if we're going to preserve marriage the way it needs to be and make a strong nation out of it, because marriage is the cornerstone of civilization, you have to be much more intentional than what we've been in recent years. Folks, we got a lot more questions we didn't get to, and we really appreciate you sending them in. So we're going to try to get to them next time around. And please keep sending them. Radio at wallbuilders.com is the place to email your questions. And then, of course, visit wallbuilders.com today to get some of the materials that will help equip you and inspire you to be a better citizen and help restore America's Constitution. We sure appreciate you listening today to Wall Builders Live. We stand undivided forever you.